This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Josh Keating covers international affairs for Slate. So when there's something I don't quite get in the world of foreign policy, he's the guy I get on the phone. This week, I needed him. I'm hoping you can explain this tweet today from Mike Pompeo. You ready? Yeah. uh, Oh, let me just get that exactly what he said in the tweet. This tweet is by far the most talked about thing that Mike Pompeo has done online in the last couple of days. But it's written in a kind of code. It says, Today, I reported to Congress that Hong Kong is no longer autonomous from China, given facts on the ground. Then Pompeo says, the United States stands with the people of Hong Kong. Yeah, so this overturns a policy dating back to 1992. Josh says, to understand what Pompeo's driving at here, you need to know that since the early 90s, Hong Kong has had this special status with the U.S. The U.S. actually considers Hong Kong a separate political entity from the rest of China. So what does that mean? Yeah, so this is important. This means things like the tariffs that the U.S. placed on Chinese exports during the recent trade war don't apply to Hong Kong. It means that, you know, there are different visa rules for travelers from Hong Kong. And China likes this. It helps them attract businesses that want to dip their toes into the region. And likewise, when Chinese companies want to expand internationally, uh, they often start by uh, sort of listing themselves on the uh, Hong Kong stock market. So Mike Pompeo pulling the special status, what does that mean? Yeah, so a bill that was passed last year during the Hong Kong protests by Congress basically requires the Secretary of State to certify every year that Hong Kong is still sufficiently autonomous to be granted this special status. You know, so both sides didn't really think the other one would act on this because it's such a kind of major escalation. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce was strongly opposed to this, and generally the U.S. business community and and the businesses that have their offices in Hong Kong, they uh, were very opposed to doing this as well. So it's, it's a controversial step. I guess I'm wondering, though, like, why now? Uh, Trump is really spoiling for a fight with China, both because he's been blaming China for starting the coronavirus and because he's heading into an election year where, you know, he's going to try to portray the Democrats as being soft on China and himself as being the guy who, you know, stood up to Beijing. I think right now we're witnessing maybe the worst sort of crisis in U.S.-China relations, maybe since Tiananmen Square in uh, 1989. Today on the show, a frosty relationship with Beijing gets frostier. Josh explains how the fight over who's to blame for the coronavirus has thrown already strained relations with China into a deep freeze. So 
Is this what the beginning of a Cold War looks like? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Figuring out how the U.S. and China reached this new low point means understanding all the different ways our two countries challenge each other and the way this coronavirus has magnified those friction points. Hong Kong is just one of many points of conflict. But what's happening there shows how the coronavirus has given a sudden shock to U.S.-China diplomacy. Last year, when protesters flooded Hong Kong streets, demanded a say in the way the city runs, it seemed like the United States might be able to use that situation to its advantage. But the coronavirus changed all that. Under the coronavirus, uh, it, those protests have kind of uh, dissipated, you know, largely because of you know social distancing requirements. So it's been a good kind of moment for China to um, press its advantage when it's harder to mount protests and when you know the attention of the international community is focused elsewhere. So that's involved uh, arresting a number of activists who were involved in the protests last year. And the biggest escalation last week was when Beijing announced that it was going to pass a new security law that would ban, you know, uh, you know what it calls seditious activities or foreign interference, but can basically be used to, uh, you know, cr- criminalize any kind of dissent or what it sees as anti-Chinese behavior. Um, and this and, is skipping know, the, the usual processes it would go through in Hong Kong, right? Exactly. This is just being inserted by the Chinese government into what's effectively the uh, Hong Kong's constitution. You know, uh, and pro-democratic activists in Hong Kong fear that this is going to be used to criminalize basically any kind of dissent or any kind of anti-Chinese organizing within Hong Kong. And you know, a, a, a you know a number of prominent. Uh, uh, pro-democracy politicians of Hong Kong have said, this is basically the end of one country, two systems. This is basically the end of Hong Kong having political independence. This is why Mike Pompeo has suddenly declared that Hong Kong is no longer autonomous from China. This new security law, it was set to go to a vote this week. Pompeo's tweet was a clear message. This announcement Pompeo made on its own does not actually involve policy changes. This is a recommendation the State Department is making. And it's kind of up to President Trump how he wants to interpret it. If he wants to actually change the U.S. relationship with Hong Kong, he has to do it um, through executive order. It seems very unlikely he wouldn't do anything, especially given all the buildup to this. But I, you know, I think we're right now we're going to see a lot of kind of ferocious lobbying. Uh, the business community is going to want a kind of softer response. And they're definitely more kind of business-oriented trade-oriented voices within the administration. Um, people like Robert Lighthizer, Steve Mnuchin are going to want to like water this down a little bit, whereas, you know, people like Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who's, you know, sort of emerged as kind of a, 
a real kind of fire-breathing China hawk is going to want to uh, uh, a more kind of maximalist response. Well, the U.S. and China have never been chummy, like friends, right? How would, how would you characterize their relationship now? There have always been kind of two sides to U.S. engagement with China. There's the kind of pragmatic side that says, that looks at the economic benefits to U.S. business of trade, that looks at the security benefits. This was especially the case during the Cold War when we were trying to balance China against the Soviet Union. Um, and, th- and there's sort of like a realist case for maintaining good relations with China. You know, on the other side, you've had both kind of uh, conservative hawks who are don't trust China's international uh, intentions. And then you've had the human rights community, um, which doesn't think we should be, you know, engaged with um, a country with as atrocious uh, human rights practices as China has. And so, you know, that those are the kind of pro and anti sides, and then they cut different ways. But um, there's this was this idea that the U.S. could kind of have it both ways that, you know, we could by engaging China, we would sort of encourage them to act the way that we want to that Clinton would say things like, you know, by bringing China to the world, we would bring, you know, the world's values and things like democracy to China, the idea that by opening up their economy, we would also open up their political system. And I, you know, that that was always kind of a dubious proposition, but I think it allowed, you know, several U.S. administrations to kind of defend uh, the idea of engagement with China uh, against sort of criticism. I, I wonder when you think the relationship between China and the United States began to shift. After Xi Jinping took power in 2012, there was this idea that he would, you know, maybe uh, be a more you know, pragmatic pro-Western leader. It, it hasn't happened that way at all. He's sort of um, both effectively made himself a president for life. Uh, China's, you know, clamped down even harder on Hong Kong, which uh, has resulted in the protests we saw last year. Uh, and it's just overall become sort of more repressive and, and more assertive internationally. So I think that under Xi Jinping, this sort of the the engagement narrative that a more open China would become, you could say either a more democratic China or a more sort of cooperative China, more responsible stakeholder. Uh, I think that narrative's kind of collapsed now. China may not have evolved into a more democratic country, but that doesn't mean it's ceding the international stage during this coronavirus crisis. With the U.S. leading the world in COVID-19 deaths, China is looking to present itself as the superpower that's been able to rein in the pandemic threat. But they've got this problem. There's ample evidence China's leaders struggled to quash the coronavirus early enough. So, I mean, this looks really bad for China. I mean, it, it, you know, that this whole idea that they're kind of the new responsible superpower in the bloc uh, takes a hit if they're the origins of this, this deadly virus and if their actions actually uh, made it worse. So, you know, China engaged in what was called mask diplomacy, uh, shipping um, uh, medical equipment, especially to countries in Europe that were hurt really hard. Uh, and it sought to sort of, you know, spread its expertise and, you know, spread this uh, message that it got 
the virus under control. It sounds like the kind of thing that the U.S. usually does, like sends a bunch of masks charitably, sends a CDC team to help you figure out what's going on. Right. And so that was happening. Um, you know, so a lot of the equipment they sent turned out to be faulty. But, you know, even so, people sort of early on, uh, it people appreciated the effort that China was making and they got a lot of praise in Europe. I think that started to backfire because they just pressed their advantage a little too hard. You know? What do you mean by that? So there's these stories that came out that they were sort of demanding and that officials in places like Germany and Canada, even the U.S., praised them publicly for the help. You saw like Chinese sock puppets online uh, disseminating the sort of message that the virus had originated in Europe. You know, the, there were sort of doctored clips of Italians playing the Chinese national anthem in, in, you know, in gratitude. You know, they, I think that uh, there was a way that China, if they had been sort of maybe a little more subtle in their approach, could have really pressed this to their advantage and sort of come out of this looking like the good guy, looking like the responsible country, especially as the U.S. kind of totally bungled its response. But um, by being so aggressive, uh, and so unwilling to countenance any sort of criticism and, and actually sort of actively spreading disinformation, uh, they've come off looking sort of just as um, irresponsible and bellicose as the U.S. has. Hmm. Yeah, there was this reporting in The Times that, you know, you, you can hear Chinese national television coming out of people's windows, and it's just tons of anti-American coverage, you know, negative reports about Mike Pompeo, about coronavirus deaths in the United States. And to me, I heard that. It just, it reminded me of the Cold War, just a ton of propaganda about, you know, how bad this other place is. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's, there are a lot of, of parallels. And I mean, um, you know, I mean, so there's this Professor at Harvard, Graham Allison, who has this theory called the Thucydides trap, which is that, you know, whenever there's a rising power, the challenge is a sort of declining dominant power um, that they're kind of destined for, usually destined for a military conflict. And, you know, it, you can maybe poke holes in the theory, but I, you know, I know last time I was into China, a lot of officials were talking about that book and were, uh, uh, and that idea that, you know, this kind of inevitable conflict, whether it's, you know, an a active shooting war or even just a kind of prolonged cold war, is one that's really taken hold, I think, in both Washington and Beijing. I think, you know, I would point out one kind of uh, key difference, which is that uh, I think that unlike in the Cold War, uh, you know, neither the U.S. nor China is coming into this with a whole lot of credibility. There was a pretty fascinating article by Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister of Australia and foreign affairs a few weeks ago, um, that said rather than, you know, a, a bipolar world, you know, divided between American and Chinese power that were headed for a kind of anarchy where there's sort of no uh, superpower that really has sway and uh, and that these other kind of middle power countries are going to be, are kind of on their own uh, at, since both neither the Chinese nor American model looks very appealing right now. Hmm. 
<laughs> That's interesting. It's like a whole separate idea than the Cold War idea where <laughs> you have these two powers that are fighting, but in some ways it doesn't matter because they've both kind of lowered themselves enough that everyone else kind of looks at them and shrugs their shoulders. It's going to be tough going forward. I mean, because of the economic and military importance of both the U.S. and China, countries can't just ignore them. I mean, you you know, to go back to climate change, you can't have a climate deal that is effective at all, that excludes like the two largest CO2 emitters in the world. Uh, you can't really have a, uh, you know, a, a meaningful security alliance that excludes, you know, the two largest militaries. So it's, um, it's going to be tough, but I, I think that, uh, you know, you, you, this sort of weird, unexpected consequence of this may be that uh, there may be sort of more multilateralism and more economic and political cooperation among the middle, the sort of middle countries in Europe and Asia that are kind of fed up with um, these two unreliable behemoths. It sounds like middle school, like everyone's taking their lunch tray and going to go sit at another table. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it's hard. It's hard to have a cold war when uh, nobody wants to, you know, sign up for either team. Hearing Josh say this, I had to wonder what happens when you throw a cold war and nobody shows up. How does an escalation like this end? I think that, you know, for one, it seems like both sides right now see it in their interest to escalate the crisis. I mean, even after Tiananmen Square, there were kind of like back channels remained uh, that were maintained between um, the the first Bush administration in Beijing. Uh, Right now, it doesn't seem like there's the same level of communication, and partly just because of the Trump administration's distrust of diplomacy entirely. I think that, uh, you know, right now you're hearing more support in Washington and in the business community for this idea of decoupling, you know, separating um, the uh, U.S. and Chinese economies, you know, because of how, you know, intertwined supply lines are between the U.S. and China. That's probably not possible to do entirely. But I, you know, I do think that, you know, it seems like we're drifting into like a period of hostility and, uh there don't seem to be, you know, strong voices on either side who want to sort of keep the relationship on track. I mean, the U.S. and China have been trying to open up to each other since the 70s. Is the dream of what that relationship could be dead? I'd say hopefully we could maybe do away with some of the kind of fictions of engagement, the idea that just through, you know, if China becomes prosperous enough and opens up its economy enough, it'll stop doing the things we don't like, whether that's human rights violations or, you know, its policy on Taiwan or the South China Sea or Hong Kong. I think we have to be realistic about the fact that there are sort of intractable conflicts between the U.S. and China, and they're not going to go away no matter how rich China gets, or no matter how many Apple products it buys. Hmm. So the Pollyanna phase is over. Yeah. But on the other hand, I, you know, I don't think that means we're necessarily destined for military conflict. I think, you know, if you look at the history of the Cold War, even during the worst periods of the Cold War, it was possible to, you know, make progress on things like arms control. I think there are definitely 
multilateral issues that the U.S. and China have common interests on, whether it's sort of, you know, governance in cyberspace or uh, climate change being a big one. I, I think that there are still ways that the U.S. and China can keep lines of communication open and, um, you know, sort of both act responsibly in areas where they have common interests while being clear-eyed that uh, there are just a lot of areas where, for the foreseeable future at least, uh, we're not going to see eye to eye. Josh Keating, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Josh Keating writes about international affairs for Slate. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Daniel Hewitt. I'm Mary Harris. Lizzie O'Leary will be here tomorrow with What Next TBD. And I'll catch you on Monday. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.